We continue this summer uh, to preach through a series in which we're examining the lives of characters in the Old Testament, um, seeing what God is doing in their lives, how God changes them, how He challenges them, where their faults are, and ultimately how they point us to the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. This morning, we'll be looking at the character of Gideon. Gideon is someone you're probably familiar with uh, if you grew up in the church or went to Sunday school, if you've read a children's Bible. Uh, he, he has a kind of a fun story, and he puts some, some fleeces out, and he has a weird interaction with God, and they light some torches and bang some, bang some pots together. It's a, it's a, it's a fun story, um, but there's actually a lot more to it than that, um, and it is ultimately a very tragic story, and it's, <laughs> and we'll, we'll see how in just a moment. But as is often the case, the people that God works with, that he chooses to work through, are, are deeply flawed. And yet, they exhibit faith, God uses them, and ultimately he is glorified. And everything that we can learn from this story, um, the, the value of faith, the, uh, the need for proper worship, the way, how to raise and communicate our faith with children, all of these things can be summed up in a simple idea that God gets the glory. Throughout this whole story, that is our takeaway that God wants us to get. He gets the glory. And we'll see how that plays out in good and then ultimately in tragic ways. Gideon's story is long. It covers three chapters of the book of Judges, and so I won't be reading the entire story, all three chapters, and I won't be reading it at the beginning. I'm going to summarize, read, summarize, and read, and we're just going to walk through the story throughout the course of the sermon this morning. I'll tell you the story and comment on it as we go. And so we meet Gideon. Gideon is, is basically a nobody, and he's living during a time when Israel has no king, and the great patriarchs, Moses and Joshua, have died. And their successors have become progressively more corrupt generation after generation. Judges chapter 6 says that the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. So Israel is living in the promised land at this time, but they are surrounded by pagan nations. They often intermingle with them. They often share gods with one another. And so we find Israel in a place where they are essentially polytheistic, not giving God the, the honor and the glory that he's due, not remembering what he did for them when he delivered them from Egypt, how he broke the walls of Jericho, how he brought them into the promised land. And in the book of Judges, because this is chapter 6, this has already happened a few times. It will continue to happen again. There's something called the Judges Cycle, where Israel turns from God, God gives them over into the hand of their enemies, and then God raises up a leader, a judge, who delivers them to their enemies, restores them back to worshiping God. And then Israel turns again and the cycle begins. Throughout the book of Judges, the cycle gets worse and worse and worse until at the end, in a particularly gruesome story, Israel's debauchery and fallenness is put on full display. So Gideon is a young man. When we meet him, he's in the bottom of a wine press. He's hiding in a hole. He's threshing wheat 
doing some menial labor, essential labor, things that is gonna, this is going to keep his family alive, it's going to provide food. He's doing it in this hiding place, though, because Israel is conquered by the, by the nation of Midian, and they are terrified of them. They're, the people of Midian are so numerous, they have, they have countless camels, the Bible tells us. Um, and they've just been destroying crops and fields, killing families, persecuting the people. The, God has heard the people's cry, and he is going to respond. So in Judges chapter 6, verse 11, this, this man, Gideon, meets the angel of the Lord. Judges 6, verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the, t- the tabernacle at Ophrah that belonged to Joash the, Abizite, the Abizrite, where his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord... <coughs> Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wondrous deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do, I, do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord. How can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come from you, come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. So Gideon meets the angel of the Lord, God's embodied messenger. God himself has come to provide the people what they have been groaning and begging and praying for, deliverance. And he comes to this man, Gideon. But Gideon does not feel worthy of the task. And not only does he not feel worthy of the task, he doubts that this is really God And he doubts that God can really do what he says. Because Gideon does know about the great things that God supposedly did in the past. This this phrase, right, how God led us out out of Egypt is almost always invoked in worship. Who is our God? What is, our, what is different about our God than the others? Well, our God is the God who led us out of Egypt, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. That's our God. He is distinct. He is different. He is good. But Gideon invokes it to say, if he's good, why am I hiding in a wine press? And how often do we experience that exact kind of doubt and frustration? We are not, certainly not living under the extreme oppression where we have to do menial, life-saving labor in secret and in hiding. But all of us live in this broken world together, and all of us have experienced frustration and pain and tragedy. And when we experience those things, how, how natural is it to say, God, I thought I knew you, but why is this happening? 
So God is gracious to Gideon. God does not rebuke him for this question. He encourages him. He even calls him, this young, scared man in the bottom of a well, a mighty man of valor. Now, Gideon has no military experience that we know of. He's done nothing to earn that title at all. But that's the title that God gives him. He says, go in this might of yours. What might? (laughs) I'm the least of my family, which is the least of the people, and I'm hiding in a wine press. But this is what God does. God speaks prophetically. He says, no, I, I am saying that this is who you are. And though you might doubt that, no, I'm going to be with you. And if I'm going to be with you, then you will succeed. But of course, Gideon is still doubtful. And throughout the, ne- in the next section of this, he, he does bring an offering to the, to the angel of the Lord. Uh, and the angel of the Lord proves himself. The, the, the offering is consumed and disappears. The, the angel leaves Gideon, and Gideon is left there uh, terrified. It says in verse 22, he says, <clears throat> Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord, and Gideon said, Alas, O God, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is peace. To this day, it stands at Ophrath, which belongs to the Abizrites. So God is gracious. He is good. He meets Gideon in his doubt. He provides encouragement. He even provides a miraculous sign. Gideon receives it. He's terrified by it, and God comforts him. Gideon worships, and he declares, the Lord is peace. So often when we, when you want to analyze a story or understand a character, you, you know, you try to ask, well, you know, what do they want? What's the conflict in the story? What does the character want? What's going on? And Gideon, we, we're never really given at this point a, a picture into his mind, as, as we rarely are in the Bible. I think we could say, you know, Gideon's going to want to not be oppressed, just as all of Israel does. But the desire of a character in the story that is much clearer is, is that of God's. What does God want? God wants his people to worship him. He wants his people to be the people that he has called them. Remember how God calls Gideon a mighty man of valor, even though he's not? Well, God did the same thing for all of Israel when he delivered them from Egypt and made a covenant with them on Mount Sinai. He said, you will be to me a holy nation of priests. You will be a blessing to all the nations. That was not true of Israel when he said it, but it could and will be if they would trust and obey him. God wants his people to give him the glory that he is due, and he will bless them and and protect them and answer their prayers. And so the first thing that God does with, his, with this new servant that he, of, of Gideon, who now, who now knows him, who's declared his peace and love for him, who's worshipped him, he does not send him to do the thing that he said he would. Right? God said, hey, get up, go defeat Midian. Now that they've gotten through Gideon's reservations and fears, the task is go destroy this altar to Baal that your family has constructed and the people of your town worship. 
Gideon may have been confused. I thought we were dealing with Midian, but he obeys. He obeys. He goes, he destroys, he destroys the altar. He's given a new name. The people are frustrated by this, but they, they say, no, this could be a good thing. If Baal is real, let him contend with Gideon. And so Gideon will often be referred to as Jerubbabel, which is let Baal con- contend with him. God is telling again, what's most important here is that I receive the glory that I am due and that I do not share it with any other God. If you want to defeat Midian, if you want to be delivered from this oppression, the first thing you have to do is tear down these idols. Because the real problem that Israel has is not their idolatrous neighbors, is not their defeats in battle, it is their unfaithfulness to God. It is their continued practice of idolatry. Jesus summarized this extremely succinctly in his Sermon on the Mount when he talked about worry and anxiety. He said, seek first the kingdom of God and all of these things, the things you will eat, the things you will wear, what you will do tomorrow, all of these things will be added to you. But your Father knows what you need before you ask of it. And so before God is going to deliver, God wants Gideon and his people to respond in faith and to worship him. God wants them to have faith and to worship. And so Gideon does. Now, it's time for Gideon to deal with the Midianites. It's time for God to make good on his promise and deliver his people. And so we pick up in Judges chapter 6, verses 36. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone, and it is dry on all the, on, on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hands, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only. And on all the ground, there was dew. This is the story, this is the part of the story that we really give a lot of attention to. At least, whenever I heard the story growing up, or or read it in whatever children's Bible I had, this is the really, like one of the really memorable parts to me. Um, But in the context of the story, one, we're we're barely, we're not even halfway through what the Bible has to say about the life of Gideon. Um, Ultimately, this is just another example of Gideon's hesitancy and fearfulness. There is no formula that's being presented here for how to make decisions or how to know God's will. Gideon knows exactly what he's supposed to do. Gideon has been assured by God. He's been given a miraculous sign, but he still doubts. And so on the one hand, there is the warning and there is the, the negative example. You know, we, we should receive God's word for what it is 
and not be overly hesitant. And we see how Gideon is so very, please don't be angry. Please let me ask one more time. Please do this for me. And yet at the same time, God doesn't rebuke him at all again. There is no, oh, you of little faith, no scolding. God is very exceedingly patient, and he provides Gideon what he asks for. Gideon's faith is very fragile and is very hesitant, and often ours is as well. I've used this illustration even recently, and sometimes I've hesitated to do this, but faith is like, and I've said this a number of times before, faith is like getting on a plane. And on the plane, there's, there's a whole collection of people. Some of them are very, very comfortable on the plane. You've flown million, many times before. You go put on, your, put on your, your, your eye cover. You take a nap. Put out a book. Read. Before you know it, you're at your destination. But, but others are very uncomfortable flying. And they get on the plane, and they are shaking. Some people actually take uh, medication to help them sleep or to help them get over their anxiety when they have to fly because it is such a scary experience for them. Gideon is like one of those people. He is very scared to get on the plane. He keeps wanting to be assured. Could you, could I, could I talk to the pilot? You know, can I, could you just, could you just remind me that he knows what he's doing? Uh, and God is like the pilot who keeps coming back to assure this one scared man that he really knows what he's doing and he's really flying the plane. The thing about faith, though, is that all of those people are on the plane and all of them arrive at the same destination. And so while we, we do want to grow in faith, because we'll be spending our whole lives living in it and flying on that plane, even the smallest, fragilest faith brings us to God is received by God with gracious love and affection. And so while we do not want to emulate Gideon's testing and testing and testing of God, we can be encouraged that though our faith is weak, he is strong, and faith that is even as small as a mustard seed is enough for God to do incredible and miraculous things, which now he will do. The, the, the armies of Midian have gathered and it's time now for Gideon to go down and defeat them. And God has one more thing for him. Not a test, not a challenge, and not a request from Gideon. It's actually God goes out of his way to encourage Gideon. He says, look, hey, if you're, if you're scared, I've given them a dream. You know what? I've, I've, gotten one, I've gotten a passage ahead of myself. Before God gives him this dream of encouragement, he actually has something to say. And this is continuing our theme in Judges 7, chapter 1. Chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned 
and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And any one of whom I say to you, This one shall go with you, shall go with you. And any one of whom I say to you, This one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to the mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand, and let the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets and sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. So this is a, cha- a turning of the tables. And Gideon obeys every step of the way. Here there's no more hesitancy. Here Gideon exhibits the faith that is praised in the book of Hebrews chapter 11 when the author says, Oh, time would fail me to tell you of the others, the heroes of the faith, like Gideon, who by faith conquered armies and delivered his people. There is no, there is no un- special, unique uh, meaning behind the way that these men drink water. The whole purpose here is very simple. Again, God says, there's too many of you, and if you win this way, you will boast over me, and I will not get the glory that I'm due. You will take the glory for yourselves. You will say, we have defeated them. There's too many of you, and so I'm going to go way overboard. 22,000 people left, 10,000 remained, but even still, that number gets reduced to 300. And it is at this point now that God gives Gideon his unasked-for encouragement. Gideon is sent down to listen to the encamped army that he's about to fight. And he overhears people talking to each other about a dream that they've had. And it's a strange dream in which a piece of bread comes tumbling down a hill and destroys a tent. It is odd and strange. And no commentator that I've read can agree on why a piece of bread is rolling down a hill. But the effect is that the people of Midian are terrified. This bizarre dream has convinced them that the God of Israel is against them and that he's going to destroy them. Gideon, upon hearing this, it says in, in verse 15 of chapter 7, as soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped and he returned to his camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he delivered the, divided the 300 men into three companies, put trumpets into the hands of all of them, and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch where they had just set the watch and they blew the trumpets, smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands and the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. They cried out, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp 
and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Bethsetha, toward Zarepha, as far as the border of Abel, Meholah, by Tabath. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from all Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. God accomplishes exactly what he promised. And Gideon doesn't have to wage war at all. This mighty man, commissioned by God, disciplined, encouraged, patiently brought along, responds in faith, proceeds with an insane, bizarre plan, and God is faithful and accomplishes what he said. Only, only God can receive the glory from this incredible victory. And usually, this is where the story ends when we tell it. God has done a great thing. Gideon has learned a powerful lesson about faith. But he hasn't. He has not. There's an entire chapter left, which again, we're not going to read all of, but we'll summarize. Gideon was a man who had nothing. He was no, no status. He's hiding in a well. God calls him mighty. God encourage him with, encourages him with faith. Gideon declares that God is the Lord of peace. And here, God delivers Israel and destroys an army, and Israel doesn't have to wage war at all. God is the God of peace. He is a, he is a good God. He is a God of his promises. Again, these are all of the lessons that, that we might take from this and that you would expect that Gideon has learned. But in Judges chapter 8, things change. And, and from this point on, God does not communicate with Gideon. He, he, he leaves the story. We don't know what, what God has for Gideon, and we don't know what God wants him to do. Because God is, Gideon is no longer acting out of obedience. He is acting out of desire. So Gideon decides to pursue the army. He, they capture the princes of Midian. And then Gideon has some encounters with other parts of Israel. Other parts of Israel that are angry with him because he did not include them in this battle. They are frustrated because it seems that Gideon has taken the glory for himself and not shared it with them. Indeed, when, as Gideon travels with his 300 men pursuing the kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalmunna, he pursues them, and when he comes to a town and asks them to help him, the townspeople say, no, no. You, once you capture them, then we'll help you. And Gideon is furious. And he goes to the next town, and they say the same thing. And Gideon threatens these towns. He is furious. Don't you know who I am and what I've accomplished? How dare you not give me what I'm due? Provide for me and my soldiers. 
Gideon is able to track down these kings. He captures them. He leads a similar charge. They, they again, with 300 men, terrify the enemy, cause them to turn against each other. But at no point in the narrative does it say that God was involved or that he was acting. Once Gideon captures these kings, he brings them back to those towns, the towns that refused to provide him food and shelter for his, for his armies. In Penuel, he destroys their tower, and then it just says, he killed the men of the city. In the other town, he takes briars and thorns, and he teaches the men of the town a lesson it's unclear whether they were killed by this or whether they were simply tortured. But Gideon is taking out fierce vengeance against his own people because they disrespected him and didn't give him the glory, the honor that he felt he was due. The story continues in verse 18. Now that he has accomplished this retribution on his own people, in chapter 8, verse 18, he says to these kings, he said to Zeba and Zalmunna, Where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? They answered, As you are, so they are. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And he said, They were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. So he said to Jether, his firstborn, Rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword. For he was afraid, because he was still a young man. Then Zeba and Zalmunna said, Rise yourself and fall upon us. For as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Zeba and Zalmunna. And he took the crescent ornaments that were on, their, on the necks of their camels. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also. For you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, Let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil. For they had golden earrings, because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, We will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in, threw in it to the earrings of his spoil, and the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. And Gideon made an ephod and put it in his city in Oprah. And all Israel whored after it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more, and the land had rest 40 years in the days of Gideon. Gideon will go on to have many wives, to have concubines. He has 70 sons, and he has a, one son with a concubine who he names Abimelech, which means, my father is king. And Gideon told... <clears throat> And Gideon lived to a ripe old age. Israel had peace. But then at the end of chapter 8, it says, As soon as Gideon died, 
The people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baalbereth their god. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jeroboam, Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and return for the good that he had done to Israel. I encourage you to read all three of these chapters when you have a chance this week. So I've had to summarize so much. But you see what, Gideon, what happens to Gideon at the end of the story. Gideon says the right thing. No, no, I'm not going to be your king. My son's not going to be your king. God is your king, right? I've learned so much. God has been faithful to me. He has been patient with me. He is the Lord of peace. He's delivered us from the hands of our enemies. But I would like some money. And the people are glad to give it. And you'll notice also it lists all of the other things, the purple robes. Only kings wore purple robes. The, the ornaments on the camels, only kings wore ca- rode camels with ornaments on their necks. And the name of his son, my father is king. Now, in, in all but name, Gideon accepts the role. And all of the power and the wealth and the heritage that it brings. Gideon was not content with the miraculous, patient, loving God that had delivered him and his whole nation from oppression. He turned again, even before creating an ephod, an idol that the people would worship, he was committing idolatry. God gets the glory. God wants his people to be the people he said he is, that he says that they are. He called Gideon a a man of valor, and he made him one. But Gideon turned away from that, and with him, all of Israel. God wants his people to be who he says they are, and this is what he said of us, that we are his beloved sons and daughters, his children, whom he has sacrificed for, Jesus himself died for us and rose from the dead, not just to forgive us of our sins so we can be back to neutral, but to make us right with him. Sons and daughters, again, in the New Testament, God repeats his promise. You will be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. You will be like me. That is the call that God has put on all of us. And God wants us to know that we can be that. But that he gets the glory for it. He gets the glory for everything. You've heard us say so many times, how many times have you heard us talk about idolatry in a sermon? You'll hear it, you'll hear it for the rest of your life. As long as you are attending a church that preaches, God, that preaches the Bible. Even some that don't, they can't avoid it. Because if you read any part of the Bible, this is what it's talking about. How quick are we, who have experienced so much goodness and success and blessing from God, to build new idols right away? And, and think about the self-deception that Gideon shows here. I'm not king. I just have all the riches and the wealth and the heritage 
that being a king brings. And we say that about idolatry all the time. All sorts of sins are easy to explain and to cover up. Do you live vicariously through, your, through the success of your children? No, no, you just want what's best for them and you're providing them all the opportunities you can. You're not, you're not looking at pornography, you're, you're buying lingerie for your wife. You're not obsessed with work, you're, you're not driven to workaholism, no, you're, you're building up wealth and savings to provide for your family. We can explain away any kind of sin and idolatry. We can easily take glory from ourselves while insisting that we aren't. I'm not the king. I just have all the good things that come along with that. Saying the right thing is different than giving God the glory. Giving God the glory involves some sacrifice and some humility on our part. And that ultimately is what Gideon does not have. The success that God blessed him with destroys him. So whatever success we have experienced in our lives, however how content and at peace we are, we have to continually over and over remind ourselves that God is the one who accomplished that that he gets the glory for it, and that we have to live in gracious gratitude and humility, and that as we do so, he will continue to bless us, and he will continue to be good for us. He will continue to accomplish things through incredible means with unexpected groups of people in situations that we, ex that we could never imagine going well or turning around, as long as we give him the glory. That is what God wants from us. That is what God has accomplished for us in salvation. A free gift none of us earned and that none of us can boast in. We are already like Gideon. We don't have to aspire to be him. No. We need a judge that does not turn to idolatry. A judge that does not become like the enemies that he fights. We need Jesus. Jesus, who's rose from the dead so there could never be a time when his peace and his rule ends and we turn away. Jesus, who did not fight and kill his enemies, but loved them and died for them. That is the judge and the hero that we need, and that is the one we have in Jesus. That is the one that Gideon, every other judge, and every one of us would fail to be if we sought to be it. That is what we can learn this morning from the story of Gideon. That is what God is doing. He wants us to glorify him, to love him, to give him all of the honor, the glory, and the praise for everything we have received and experienced in our lives. And so this week, this morning, let us do that. Let us remind ourselves of what he has said about us, what he has done for us, and let's live in the peace that that brings. You pray with me. God, you are so gracious and patient with us, we of little faith. Help us, Lord. Convict us. Show us where we have said that we've given you the glory, but we have kept some for ourselves. Show us the sins that, we are, that are too easy for us to paint over. 
And Lord, meet us when we are terrified and afraid. Be patient with us and forgive us when we doubt you. Lord, if you were patient and good to Gideon, how much more will you be patient and good to us? We who believe and have been redeemed by your son, Jesus. Lord, we know that you love us. We know that you have good things prepared for us. We glorify you for it. We worship you and we love you. May you always be first in our hearts and our minds today and every day that comes. Amen.